These days, it seems meditation was always a household word. Yet a few decades back, meditation was a much more esoteric term, found only on the lips and minds of academics or seekers within the burgeoning counterculture which arose out of the many social consciousness movements of the 1960s. In the East, meditation was for millennia a known path to training the mind to focus its intent or just to recognize its content without identifying with it. In this month's podcast, Lauren Bielski interviews the Venerable Dupton Punsak, who leads the guided meditation classes most Saturday mornings in our Jacques Marche museum space. If you find this discussion intriguing and would like to experience one of Punsakla's guided meditations for yourself, be sure to go to the meditation page on our website, tibetanmuseum.org, for any questions you may have not covered in this conversation. Now settle comfortably onto your meditation pillow or just your favorite comfy chair. Take three nice, long, deep breaths, the OM being optional. Enjoy this insightful conversation between Lauren and Poonsakla. If their exploration doesn't enlighten you about meditation, then I doubt anything will. You teach a class in Manhattan and you also teach a class here on the island. How did you find the museum and what drew you to be affiliated with it? I started teaching when one of my older brothers in the tradition. He was ordained before me. He was a senior student of my teacher, and I started to get teachings from him also. He was the one who was invited here to, to give a talk at the museum, and the museum liked it at the time, and they wanted someone to continue the meditation part. And I guess I was volunteered. <laughs> <laughs> but you've been a good sport about it. Uh, yes. <laughs> Since then, I've been coming back. I haven't stopped. Once in a while, I would take a break. And when I'm going on a retreat or teaching somewhere, then maybe either no one would be teaching here or would ask someone to come and cover for me. That's how I became affiliated with the museum. Okay, great. And do you teach a different class here, or would you say that your approach is pretty uniform wherever you happen to be teaching? Yes. Now I make an emphasis on teaching meditation. One of the things I do is I focus on meditation here at the museum with a little bit of philosophy. But outside of that, I also teach in other places where I sort of make an emphasis on the philosophy with a bit of emphasis on the meditation. Okay, so there's a switch sometimes in emphasis, but mostly it's yeah. obviously those two, yeah, those two key components yes. to the process. Before we discuss the different styles of meditation, let's spend a few minutes talking about the act of meditating. I think there are a lot of misconceptions out there about what the practice means. For instance, some people believe that to do it, you need to be a religious person or following a guru. Um, others are certain that it's some mysterious and strange process. Tell me in simple terms how you would define it for a student or someone new to the practice. Yes. It's unfortunate that meditation uh, seems to be associated only with religion. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the practice itself, you can see that it's something that can be taken up by anyone, whether you're religious or not, whether you have any inclination towards spirituality or not, you can take it up. It's a natural state of the mind that we lose because of our distractions. And meditation, you could say, is finding a way back 
So whatever you're doing to get back to that natural state of your mind, that's called meditation. Mm -hmm. And when you're abiding, when you're staying in the natural state of your mind, that is also meditation. And it can be done by anyone, anyone who's tired of distraction. (laughs) Makes sense. What would you advise someone that's new to the practice and they've sat every day for two or three days and whatever expectations they had about it, their experience is paling to the expectations perhaps they had. What would you say to that person to keep them motivated? Or what should they consider or reconsider about the process? The very fact that they have an interest in meditation, they should rejoice for having even that. Right. And having made any effort, they should also rejoice. What will help is to rejoice at every step that they take and at every new experience that comes up without expecting a new experience, but being aware, being sensitive enough to notice that, oh, I was able to do this today or this much, this thing came up today. Whatever experience comes up, really take joy in that they actually experienced it. They should remember why were they interested in the first place. Why were they interested in meditation? Right. And keep connecting to that. Is meditation really going to help me get to that? And when they come up with a sense of conviction, yes, meditation will help me get to that. That will help them because it's not going to be I want it, you sit down, and then you get it. It's going to be a period of time of trying, a period of time of becoming discouraged sometimes. And you just keep on persevering, seeing that what I want is worthy of getting. And I'm seeing meditation is the way to help me get there. And just by maintaining this in their mind, that will, that will help them stay on track and not lose, not lose, uh, not lose hope. So um, you come from Haiti, and you grew up in New York City. Tell me a bit about how you came to discover Tibetan Buddhism. My story is not your typical story of how I came upon Tibetan Buddhism. My father, for some political reason, had to leave Haiti. After he left Haiti, maybe after two years, my mother followed. And after maybe another two years, I followed with my two sisters. I arrived here when I was around eight or nine years old. My father was a philosopher, and he was deeply into discussing philosophy, and I was also very interested in it. Maybe because it was just my father, or maybe I was interested in it myself. And after some time in elementary school, my social studies teacher was talking about global religions, and he mentioned Buddhism. And when he mentioned Buddhism, the way he described it, I thought it was the silliest thing ever. (laughs) So how could anyone believe in such a silly thing? Because as far as I was concerned, uh, at that age, growing up in Haiti, there were only two religions, Catholicism and Protestants. (laughs) So when I heard about uh, this completely new way of thinking in terms of religion, and especially the thing about uh, they seek to reach nirvana, and the teacher at the time said the way they believe that they can reach it is by getting rid of desire. And I thought that was very silly. How can you get rid of desire? There's no way you can get rid of desire. And this little curiosity about this silly religion was very strong in me, and I wanted to find out more. How can they believe this? What more do they believe in? I read about it. The more I studied, the more I became intrigued by it. And what really got me into Buddhism was it seemed to be showing a path how to become very much like Jesus. <laughs> That's great. Yes. 
And, and, and I had such a, because of my father's philosophical approach to Christianity and because of my growing up in Catholicism and my devotion to Jesus, so to speak, I really wanted to be like Jesus. And it seemed like as the more I was reading Buddhism, the more it seemed to be telling me it can show the path how to become like Jesus. So I became a Buddhist so I can become a real Jesus. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Actually, that's a great story. Uh, so then you decided to go to India. Tell me a little bit about that process and tell me how you learned about the Gelug School. Oh, the Gelug School, yes. Uh, so after reading a few books here in the United States at a very young age, I would continue throughout high school. And sometime right before college, in many of the books that I was reading, there was always an advice about you need to find a teacher if you really want to understand this. Mm -hmm. And how do you find a teacher? And basically, I went through the yellow pages. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the answer to everything at that time. And I did find my first teacher through the yellow pages. He was a teacher who was teaching in Chinatown, in Chongla Rato Rinpoche. He was from the Tibetan uh, tradition. Okay. And it just happened to be Gelukpa, since he was my first introduction to a formal teacher. And that's how I ended up with Gelukpa. It's not that I was looking for them, but they're the one I found. And after studying with him for some time, then he didn't become my main teacher, but uh, he was my first teacher. I came to find out about another teacher who lived in uh, Howell, New Jersey. And I went to study with him, and he became my main teacher. And also, he was in the Galuk School. Okay. So I became more acquainted with the Galuk School. And as I studied more with the Galuk, I noticed that I was very much in line with their method of studying because they make a very strong emphasis of a logical understanding of the method that you're learning. And they engage a lot in dialectic form of, of learning where they debate what they're learning. You shouldn't accept it just because it is said, but you have to debate it, you have to reason it to find out. It's not that Giluk are the only one who do that, but they make such an emphasis on it. Because of my father philosophy, I was very much drawn to that. And after a while, my teacher was the abbot of one of the biggest monasteries uh, of Tibet. The Gelukpas have three great big monasteries, and then one of them is called Serame, and he came from that. He grew up in that monastery. He became the abbot while the monastery was in India, and I wanted to have some sort of affiliation with that monastery. So I went to that monastery and became affiliated with it. I sort of, you could say, I registered. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that, that certainly is a systematic path there. Yeah. And did you ever at any point say to yourself, you know, I can just meditate in my bedroom and go on with my life and become, I don't know, a reporter or a philosopher at a, or a teacher, mm. you know, at a university or something? Or was it just pretty much once you got interested, you decided to go a devotional path? Because of my interest early on in that in the spirituality, mm -hmm. Uh, I was always looking for something that where I can just dive into it. And this gave me the opportunity to dive into it. I really wanted to know what can be the end goal of, of this. And I wanted to go as deeply as I can. And the deepest way I can go into it is to be ordained. So I asked my teacher in New Jersey at the time to give me ordination. And he ordained me. It was after he ordained me that I went to India. But I didn't stay in India. Like I did not become a resident and stay there for years. I would travel back and forth, stay some time, and then come back 
my main teacher was here in New Jersey. Okay. Now, um, there's so many different styles of meditation, from focused attention to open monitoring approaches. In the Buddhist tradition, you have various Zen styles, and then, of course, there is the Vipassana, or insight meditation. Could you explain where the tradition of the nine steps of calm abiding kind of fits in to the Vipassana? Um, I don't, I'm not looking for a huge, you know, lecture in this, although I, I suspect. I was just about I, to give I, you a lecture on that. <laughs> I suspect that I, personally, I'd be very interested in that. But um, um, we don't need to get too academic for our purposes here. I just want to get a sense of context. Okay. I think a lot of confusions, a lot of misunderstandings come from, the different terms that people hear, and then people associate those terms with meditation itself. Consider meditation in a general universal sense. There is this state of mind that no matter where you're coming from, whether it's religious, whether it's India, East, West, that pe people say, or people point to it and say, oh, that's meditation. Mm. And people have different approaches on how to get to that state that they call meditation. And those different approaches become the different styles of meditation. But still, it is arriving at this point called meditation. Within the Buddhist system, meditation is sort of divided into two approaches. One approach is where you are developing mainly a stable mind, a mind of focus. And another approach where you either use that stillness to bring about some sort of transformation, a transformation in the sense of where you gain a deep understanding of something very meaningful, or you transform your mind to a different kind of mind where, which is more wholesome, more health, a healthier state of mind. That process where you're developing something, that approach is referred to as vipassana. Okay. okay. Within the Buddhist system, you have what you might call the northern school. Geographically speaking, right. that's how we ended up with it. You take India as the center. Right. North of India, there's a particular style of Buddhism that became prevalent. And then below India, there's a, another kind of Buddhism that became prevalent. With those in the south, they developed one school made an emphasis on vipassana. Ah. Where, and within vipassana, there is the sense of being aware of what is actually taking place presently. And it's not that only vipassana does that. As a meditation, all forms of meditation do it. But vipassana, you could say, makes an emphasis on that. Right. So not running away from experiences, not pushing away experiences, not grasping onto experiences, but rather just sitting with whatever experience is taking place. And as you do so, you're at the same time gaining that calmness where you're not really focusing on just trying to deliberately, directly try to get that calmness, but you, by the way, as a part of it, you get to it. Okay. Yeah. The, and the way within the, the northern school of Buddhism, the emphasis is on the transformation of the mind, the transformation of the heart into a heart of compassion. And again, it's not that the southern school don't practice compassion, but the northern school make a big emphasis on compassion, what you might call universal compassion. And in developing that compassion, when you finally arrive at that place of stillness of the mind, you go through nine levels of experiences. And as you go through these each levels of experience, you get closer to that transformation, and eventually you arrive at a vivid experience that is just unshakable. And at, at the same time, you arrive at that stillness. 
and that's supposed to be the nine levels. So in a sense, the nine levels that is presented in the northern school is already included in the Vipassana. They just delineate, oh, these are the experiences that you will go through. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, very interesting. In terms of the nine steps in research that I did, it starts out with focusing on an object. At least the tutorial that I read indicated that at each step you use a different mental faculty. For example, in the setting the mind stage, you focus your attention on the object, mm -hmm. uh, such as the Buddha, and you rely on listening. That is, you had to listen to the teachings from the guru mm -hmm. or from the book that you read mm -hmm. and absorb and retain them and incorporate them into the meditation so that I suppose when you're conjuring up an image of a Buddha, it's fully formed in your mind and associated with it are the sort of philosophical writings about the Buddha. Mm -hmm. And so you're coming up with a real image, not just say some statue or something. Yes, yes, yes. Talk a little bit about that. Do you think that those steps make sense to you? Do you incorporate them in your teachings personally? Oh, yes, I do. I don't talk about the nine step too much because okay. it's uh, too much <laughs> for some people. I mean, in certain classes, yes, I talk about them, but in general, I don't. But when someone is learning to meditate, they are going through those steps, whether right. they are consciously aware of them or not. The first stage, which is referred to depending on the power of listening, for example, what this is saying is that you remember the instruction you were given, mm -hmm. and you keep going back to the instruction that was given to you. And that instruction is not at that moment part of you. It's not something that, is, that has been internalized yet. So you're remembering the instruction. And as you're remembering the instruction, whatever you're supposed to be doing, the Buddha image, for example, it's like this, it's like that, it's like this, it's like that, it's like this. When your mind is going through this, in a sense, it's going through what is referred to as vipassana. Mm. It's the vipassana part of it. You're analyzing. Right. It has this, it has that, it has this. And by going through this over and over again, you begin to begin to be aware of what are the things that are present in your mind that are preventing you from having a clear, vivid perception of this image. It doesn't necessarily have to be an image. It could be a sentiment. And you go through the process of, by thinking a certain way, you conjure a certain emotion, for example. You keep going through those, through those mental processes until that uh, emotion, uh, let's say love, for example, comes up into your heart. Then when that love comes into your heart, then that's your object of meditation. Right. Then you hold on to that, try to hold on to that, and you let go of the things that you were doing before that got you to this emotion. So if it's the image, for example, then you would keep going through your mind, it has this, it has that, it has this, and until the image appears to you clearly. Once the image appears clear to you, you can dispense of describing it to yourself. Now you've definitely gone to a certain step. Then after a while, then, to what degree are you distracted? To what degree are you maintaining your stillness, the clarity of your mind? So that's basically what you're going through the rest of the nine stages. At, at some point, you're able to hold on to it. And at other points, you're distracted. And your progress on how less are you distracted or how much are you distracted determines where are you along the path okay. until you actually reach a point where you've really done away with distraction, where you're no longer able to be distracted. That's supposed to be the ninth stage. But throughout all that, you are applying the method of vipassana, so to speak. Well, thank you so much, and I enjoyed speaking with you and um, taking the class earlier. It was great. Well, thank you. Thanks. <laughs>
If you found this discussion intriguing and would like to experience one of Poonsakla's guided meditations for yourself, be sure to go to the meditation page on our website, TibetanMuseum.org, for any questions you may have not covered in this conversation, along with Poonsakla's guided meditation class schedule. For now, from Jacques Marche, Museum of Tibetan Art, on Lighthouse Hill, overlooking historic Richmond Town on Staten Island, I'm Rudy Basich. Tashi Delek. <laughs>